Showbiz News Power Hour. Yeah, welcome to your hour of power. It is Tuesday, the 6th of July, 2021. And a very warm welcome from me, Alec Hogg, and our Biz News team, bringing you the best and freshest business news every night between uh, the time that you know on your radio. I can't say exactly because we do broadcast on Fine Music Radio and on Chai FM at different times, as well as live streaming through biznewsradio.com at 5.30, 7 o'clock in the mornings and 7 o'clock in the evening. So what's coming up tonight? Uh, lots of interesting news for you. Mining gets quite a good focus. We will be speaking with Peter Major uh, about how South Africa should really be benefiting more from the mining boom, but at least it's there and rescuing us from a very dark period at the moment. We'll also be hearing from Stephen Nathan, who is our Tuesday evening guest co-host on mining and more. Uh, we'll be speaking with another Stephen, Stephen von Koller, uh, and that is on EOH, which has done everything possible to get out the bad guys and is still uh, being attacked by some members of government. And then we will be talking with uh, Jean-Pierre Fester, uh, my colleague Justin Rowe Roberts had a fascinating discussion with him earlier today. We'll be picking up on that later in the program. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Well, let's pick up on the news headlines here in South Africa with our colleague from Biz News, Nadia Swart. Nadia? The world's deepest precious metals mines, together with giant iron ore and coal pits, are providing an unexpected boon to a South African economy, which is slowly recovering from its biggest contraction in a century. Surging demand and prices for commodities, including platinum group metals, iron ore, manganese and coal, are generating record mining company profits and bolstering government revenue. South Africa's terms of trade, a measure of export prices relative to import costs, increased by 12% over the past year and more than 20% since the end of 2018 as the global economic recovery from the pandemic pushed up demand for commodities. This is according to HSBC bank economist David Faulkner. Anglogold Ashanti has appointed a former BHP group executive, Alberto Calderon, to its top job, ending a nearly year-long headhunt that's weighed on the shares of the number three gold producer. Calderon, a 61-year-old Colombian who once served as a junior minister in a government that fought drug lord Pablo Escobar, will join Anglo Gold on the 1st of September. The government will most likely extend the two-week adjusted Level 4 lockdown regulations as COVID-19 cases in South Africa continue to rise. This is the view of Hiju Pinar, Chief Economist at the Bureau for Economic Research at Stellenbosch University. Pinar said that the fact that an agreement has been reached to extend the COVID-19 temporary employer-employee relief scheme to employees affected by the Level 4 lockdown gives a hint that the regulations will be extended beyond the initial two weeks. And South Africa's ruling ANC Congress has distanced itself from former President Jacob Zuma's attempt to discredit the Constitutional Court after it found him guilty of contempt and slated threats by his supporters to block the authorities from arresting him. All South Africans have a responsibility to respect and observe the law and the judiciary and law enforcement agencies need to be defended from political attack, the ANC's National Executive Committee said in a statement on Tuesday. Thanks, Nadia. That's uh, your news in a nutshell. Let's find out what happened on the markets with Justin Rowe Roberts. The JSE All Share Index was flat at 66,300. The rand, the rand has weakened slightly against all the major currencies to 14 rand 27 cents to the US dollar, 19 rand 75 cents to the pound, and 16 rand 87 cents to the euro. Gold is up past the 1,800 level, trading at $1,808 an ounce. A Kruger Rand will put you back approximately 27,000 rand. Brent crude is trading lower at $76.50 a barrel, and the premier cryptocurrency costs just shy of half a million rand. In the financial news today, UK hospital group Spear has accepted a new £1.4 billion offer from rival group Ramsey, South African medical group MediClinic, which also has interest in the United Arab Emirates and Switzerland, has a 30% stake in the Spear group, 
which will be some welcome cash flow as the group has faced many headwinds during the COVID period, where higher margin elective surgeries have fallen off a cliff. MediClinic is the largest constituent of investment house Rembro. The largest property group on the JSE, Growth Point, renewed their cautionary announcement relating to their approximate 30% stake in London-listed Global Worth real estate investments. The current offer values Global Worth at around 20 billion rand and will be a welcome cash injection to Growth Point, which has been stricken with vacancies and a high debt pile to boot. Growth Point shares were up 2% on the JSE today. Thank you, Justin. It's time now to stand by for our colleagues at the Financial Times of London. This market report was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Tuesday, July 6th, and this is your FT News Briefing. The private equity powerhouse KKR is on the hunt for British companies. We'll hear more on the latest major ransomware attack. It affected more than a 1,000 companies. And a stalemate among oil producers is sending oil prices higher. Plus, Beijing has cracked down on several big Chinese tech companies, including the big ride-hailing company Didi that just floated in the U.S. last week. The pattern here is also a kind of reversal, if you like, of the paranoia and fears that the U.S. government has had against Chinese companies like Huawei or like TikTok. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. One of the world's largest private equity firms is expanding its operations in the UK. The head of European buyouts at KKR told the FT that the firm will set up a team of five dealmakers to focus on buying British companies. Private equity firms have been snapping up British companies at a record pace after Brexit and the pandemic depressed valuations. So far this year, buyout groups have bought or announced bids for more than 350 UK companies. The latest deal was announced this weekend. Investors were led by US group Fortress, which agreed to a £9.5 billion deal for supermarket group Morrison's. It would be the country's largest leverage buyout since KKR bought the pharmacy chain Boots in 2007. Oil prices hit their highest level since 2018 yesterday, all thanks to a stalemate among OPEC and its oil-producing allies over increasing oil production. Saudi Arabia, Russia, and the United Arab Emirates were all at odds during last week's meetings, and on Monday, the UAE believes the supply target is too low and underestimates its production capacity. Brent crude climbed to $77.09 a barrel, and West Texas Intermediate rose to $76.20 a barrel. Oil prices have risen 50% since the start of the year as demand recovers from the lows of the pandemic. One analyst says the postponed OPEC meeting means no additional barrels on the market as August approaches, hence the jump in oil prices. Beijing is cracking down on more Chinese tech companies, specifically those that have listed in the U.S. recently. The most notable is the big ride-sharing company Didi Shuxing that just listed on the New York Stock Exchange last week. Right after its debut, Chinese regulators put the company under a cybersecurity review. And on Sunday, Beijing ordered Didi's app off Chinese app stores, saying the company had violated personal data laws. The FT's Deputy Beijing Bureau Chief Yuan Yang has more on Didi's response. Well, in China, companies, whenever they're being investigated, very rarely fight back in public. Behind closed doors, they may lobby and negotiate, but certainly in public, they have to display a kind of loyalty and complete submissiveness to the authorities. So Didi in public has said that it will sincerely accept the investigation. It's even thanked the authorities for starting this investigation. But Edie has also said, um, and this is will be of great interest, of course, to its investors, that it did not know about this investigation until after the IPO. And that's going to be very important in investors' decisions as to whether they should take action against Didi. Now, Yuan, uh, Chinese regulators also put two other big Chinese tech companies under a similar cybersecurity review. What can you tell us about that? So those were one, a truck hailing platform called uh, Full Truck Alliance, and secondly, a recruitment platform called uh, Bosch Jupin. Both of those are now listed in the US, and they listed actually in the last few weeks. So there's also a strange kind of timing symmetry about this, that these are freshly listed Chinese tech stocks in the US, and their investors are likely going to suffer from these moves as well. So it sounds like there's a pattern here. I think there's clearly a pattern in that these are foreign listed companies. 
Um, some of the lawyers that we're speaking to in China are pointing to the fact that um, with the new Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act, a, a law that passed in the U.S. in December, within the next three years, uh, Chinese uh, companies who are listed in the U.S. will have to give their auditing data to U.S. auditing agencies. And this is a, has been a long-standing concern for the Chinese government in terms of the U.S. getting its hands on what could be considered nationally sensitive data on a large number of Chinese citizens. Yuan, based on what you know at this point, what else could be behind these moves by Chinese regulators? I think there are several layers going on here. And the top layer is what the regulators are saying on the surface. They're saying this is a cybersecurity review, that there's been legal collection of personal information. It's related to the vast amount of user data that DD has its hands on. And bear in mind, if you deliver ride shares to people and you deliver them taxis, then it's fairly easy to figure out where people live, where they work, where they socialize, where they, may, they might go in private, including um, everyone from you know, ordinary citizens all the way up to government officials who use the service. I think the layer underneath that, the pattern that we're seeing with these actions against newly listed companies in the US, I think is the fear of data somehow making its way into foreign governments or foreign uh, citizens' hands, that this could be an early strike uh, from Chinese regulators against the the potential of having audit data being passed to the U.S. I think this layer, the political layer, and the issues about Chinese companies listing abroad, especially in the U.S., is a much less well-defined concern than the concern over cybersecurity and the cybersecurity laws and the letter of the law. I think this concern is something that is really developing in China in recent years, especially in response to the tech decoupling from the U.S., a kind of mirror of the similar fears from the U.S. side. Um, and so this is, this is a fear that is not going to be very easily resolved by both sides. And in the end, I think it comes down to trust. Yuan Yang is the FT's Deputy Beijing Bureau Chief. And ransomware attacks keep getting bigger and more damaging. The latest that we know of happened last week. A notorious Russia-linked ransomware group called Revil is believed to be behind the attack on an IT management software supplier called Kaseya. The hack affected more than a thousand companies. Revil later demanded $70 million in Bitcoin to unlock networks. I think what we're seeing is hackers going for targets that can disrupt our daily lives. So you've got the colonial pipeline attack in which a fuel supply was disrupted, JBS, a meat supplier, huge meat supplier. That's Hannah Murphy. She covers tech for the FT. She's been following all this. What is very interesting about this particular attack is that it was a supply chain attack. So the hackers only had to breach really one provider, this information management software supplier, in order to then spread ransomware to its clients and then its clients in turn. So you have this sort of cascading effect where the hack of one company can lead to that of thousands. And this really is something that we actually haven't seen very much in ransomware. Yes, there have been big supply chain attacks in the past. So one example would be the SolarWinds attack, where it emerged last year that Russian state-backed hackers hijacked this IT group called SolarWinds in order to penetrate the email systems of U.S. federal agencies and, and scores of corporations there. But that was a sort of very sophisticated espionage campaign by Russian hackers. This is different. This is criminal hackers tapping the IT supply chain. And that is something that's very worrying. That's the FT's Hannah Murphy. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Tuesday means time for Stephen Nathan to guide us through the with context on the major stories of the moment. Stephen, one thing that is good news for South Africa, certainly from a financial point of view, is the balance of payments. We are earning a heck of a lot more from what South Africa is exporting to the rest of the world than what we are buying, primarily because mining companies are doing very well indeed. It's almost like South Africa's falling back onto its old, old faithful, and old faithful is definitely delivering. But I guess it could be so much better if you think about the way that the mining sector has been hammered through bad legislation, through bad policy, 
And yet the old faithful is still in there, still rescuing South Africa from one of its darkest hours. Yeah, and if you're right, it's quite uh, it's quite amazing. It's almost like it's our get out of jail free card uh, for COVID to help our government uh, finance the enormous deficit and the lack of ec- uh, economic activity and the lack of tax receipts. So it's fantastic to see the mining sector do so well. As you say, uh, it could be doing three x, four x, maybe five x better. But, you know, that's kind of water under the bridge and we can reminisce. I think I remember the days where South Africa was the number one gold producer in the world. Uh, I don't think we're in the top 10 anymore. So we definitely have fallen uh, enormously from grace. But as you say, it's definitely, uh, you know, helping the economy a lot and it's helping the currency a lot. But the thing the thing with sort of these big uh, economic numbers is that, uh, it's never all good and it's never it's never all bad. So it's good because we are exporting a lot more than we are importing. So the exports are growing uh, rapidly and, as you say, primarily driven by the resource boom, the higher resource prices we're getting for exports. But also what's happened is that we're importing far less because we're growing at a much lower rate. So there's a uh, you know much less of a demand for consumer goods, uh, there's less of a demand for infrastructure, so we tend to import uh, when we are on an infrastructure drive. Uh, so the headline number is great, but the underlying number is always a little bit uh, uh, deceiving. And as I say, there's never it's never all good or all bad with economics. There's always some kind of counterbalancing forces. And it's also worth interesting to note that the U.S., as an example, uh, runs almost permanent uh, trade deficits. So, so quarter or upon quarter, uh, they run a trade deficit. And, and, and in simple terms, uh, they spend a lot more uh, than they produce. Uh, and China actually uh, uh, runs trade surpluses because they produce a lot more than they spend. So they, they ship the goods across to the U.S. The U.S. buys those goods. But in order to finance it, the U.S. has to issue government debt, which China in turn then buys. So, as I say, there's always kind of a positive and a negative. And, and, and the U.S. has had strong economic growth and very low unemployment despite running trade surpluses for many years. But they do obviously have quite a large debt to service. They also have the good fortune of being the world's reserve currency. And if you're the one that everybody else wants, the currency that everybody else wants, you really can mismanage badly. South Africa doesn't have that luxury, though. Yeah, no, no, without a doubt. You're right that, uh, you know, if you have unfettered power uh, with limited downside consequences, it can lead to bad behavior. And the U.S. is a bit like that. Uh, And also with, you know, incredibly low interest rates, with interest rates, the 10-year has now gone above, I think it's about 1.5% is what the government pays. It was down at uh, less than half a percent. Uh, so it can encourage bad behavior. It can encourage you to assume debt because your hurdle rate to achieve a return of, you know, over above a risk-free rate of half or 1.5% is really easy. So so the jury is out, but these are, these are kind of long-term trends. These things tend to happen over several decades, not over months or years. Stephen, talking about bad behavior, EOH has been one that had incredibly bad behavior in the past, but with the new chief executive, Stephen von Koller, he's worked really hard to out the bad guys. Uh, it was interesting yesterday in the conversation with Bernard Mostert from Techie Town. He was, because they're fighting to get their company back from Steinhoff, who actually gave them worthless paper in, in, uh, in return for the purchase price. But he's saying that if only the Steinhoff directors had acted like the EOH directors, then things would be a heck of a lot better for that company as well. But they seem to be terribly reluctant to go after uh, the former directors, even though the guys running the place are lawyers. Uh, yes, and as you... And as you said towards the end there, the former, it's going after the former directors because clearly the former directors, uh, both the executives and the non-executive board, and they had a very illustrious uh, non-executive board at Steinhoff, and, you know, they didn't seem to spot these irregularities. So I think it's very difficult to spot them uh, at the time. But post the fact, uh, I think EOH is really showing the way for corporate South Africa to be, you know, to be vigilant and to, and, and to hold those accountable. So, you know, that definitely is a, a good sign. I think we discussed it on the show uh, a week ago. Uh, you know, there's, 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 there's a, a lot to be gained, but it's also very brave because there's big opportunity cost uh, of management's time and cost spending doing that. You know, so that, 
that definitely is good to see. And Stephen is really on, and Stephen and the team are on a crusade to see this to the end, which I think uh, we also haven't really seen. We've seen lots of uh, noise about bringing people to account, but we haven't seen many people follow through to the end. We had an interesting conversation yesterday about Tongot with David Shapiro and Chris Logan, both of whom said it's time for Tongot to sue Deloitte for three billion rand was a number that Chris Logan put on it. Similarly, Steinhoff would at some point in time be suing Deloitte as well, uh, Deloitte being the auditors in both cases. Auditors are starting to come more and more into the spotlight for not picking up these issues but it'll be interesting to see where the companies get it right and actually get money back from the auditors for mm. not doing their job properly yes listen you know on on the face of it if you didn't know much about the industry you would say it's a no-brainer you would say that one of the primary safeguards uh, particularly when you're a listed financial uh, or a listed company because you know what it means to be listed is that uh, anyone uh, in the public can invest in your company and your affairs are available to the public if you're running a private company then you know the books are very restricted but when you're running a listed company then it's kind of fair game and it's one of the uh, the onerous responsibilities that probably hasn't been taken seriously enough is that uh, you know, you are you are there for public scrutiny, and you must be open to public scrutiny, and you must hold yourself uh, to that level of accountability. And the auditors have an enormous role because um, you know the financial statements are one of probably you know certainly the top, uh, if not in the top, the top two things that uh, uh, people would look at to say, well, you know. How is this company doing? I, I know Warren Buffett, as an example, says he only looks at financial statements. He never talks to management because mm-hmm. management will always tell you a good story. So I look at what they've done, not what they say they are going to do or give me excuses for their past, uh, their past failings. So it's of enormous importance. And also, if you think, you know, there's a premium if you go with one of the big four audit firms, you know, you pay a higher rate for their services. And the reason you do that is you 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 expect a better uh, audit. You expect more expertise and a more rigorous process. And obviously, you you know, one would attach more validity, not me, but in general, you know, that's why you would be going with one of those big names. And, and the fact that you look at, you know, financial statements that have been audited uh, with no, uh, you know, with a what's called an unqualified opinion. So they, you know, they don't raise any concerns. There are no issues that are raised and they give it a clean bill of health year after year. And then post the fact, we see these these enormous accounting scandals, these financial irregularities, these off-balance sheet structures. And, you know, you're not talking about, you know, uh, accounting firms will talk about materiality. We look at, you know, a couple of percent here and there. You know, here you're talking about companies that are seemingly incredibly profitable and they go, you know, 180 degrees the other way and they have enormous write-offs. So, you know, it's definitely... Uh, it's definitely a concern and there should be some accountability. But unfortunately, um, you know, when you look at that kind of a level, we don't, don't seem to see that. It, it reminds me of the 2008 global financial crisis where you had the rating agencies, where you had, you know, Standard and & Poor's and Moody's and others being paid handsomely and they, they rated the script as AAA. So you had this, this, this you know, AAA means that the probability of a default is extremely remote. So, you know, South Africa, we've spoken about previously, is under investment grade. So we kind of junk status. So we like it like the B minus level. You're talking about triple A as it's, you know, it's almost uh, impossible for them to default. And we know that many of them did default. And the rating agencies, by and large, uh, got away with that relatively unscathed relative to the fees they earned and the damage they caused. It is an interesting uh, conundrum that we as the public trust people and they get very highly paid for that trust but they don't live up to it, and where's the consequences? Stephen, just to close off with an interesting report coming from the UK uh, where MediClinic is now supporting a purchase of a company called Spire that it owns 30% of. MediClinic tried to buy all of Spire. Its own shareholders revolted against the idea, and Spire itself turned them down. Now they're very happy to be uh, offloading that 30%. It is interesting that the a UK medical field. I remember Jackie Shevel taking uh, Netcare into the UK as well with a big, big investment a few years ago that it's turned out into, into something of a graveyard for South African hospital companies. 
Yes, I think in general, Alec, uh, international expansion, uh, more often than not, uh, has seen uh, failure rather than, than success. And I don't think it's a South African-only phenomenon. I think if you look around the world, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, countries and companies within those countries that have tried to expand globally and have failed. I think the Americans uh, seem to be the most uh, successful, but that's really because they've got sort of global businesses, global brands. One thinks of Procter and Gamble or Coca-Cola or uh, uh, Amazon. Um, you know, but uh, uh, if you look at Walmart, Walmart uh, entered the UK with Asda uh, through Asda, and it's never really been uh, as successful as Walmart in the home country. And they've also sort of exited that more recently. So you know, it's really difficult. South Africa has a strong sort of historical, geographical time zone times ties uh, with the UK. So we kind of uh, feel uh, comfortable operating in that market. But I think it's more a, a false sense of comfort. And as you say, you know, they try to uh, buy that business out in its entirety. Uh, you know, that 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 failed. Uh, obviously, I think, you know, when was that? Was it 2005? So maybe five, six years ago, you know, things have moved on. It's a different environment. It hasn't been a particularly good investment for them. Uh, so they've struggled with that uh, investment. And you also mentioned Netcare exiting, uh, you know, that, that market. So it's very difficult at the best of times to internationalize, you know, any, any, any business. I suppose it shows you how well Discovery have done with Vitality that they have managed to make a, a success. And, of course, Investec, who've done brilliantly in the U.K. with a U.K. business now almost the same size as the South African one. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's very difficult to kind of uh, assess the success, I think, of both those companies. I mean, Discovery, uh, you know, they went into the U.S. Uh, with quite a lot of bluster quite a few years ago, how they were going to disrupt that market. They never... They never uh, achieved that, so that wasn't a success. Uh, also in the UK, they bought, uh, uh, they bought into the Prudential, so one of the very old established companies. Um, I don't actually know the financial returns on that company. It would be interesting to see you know, whether uh, the capital that they've invested, uh, they have made a, um, a decent return. I actually, I actually don't know those numbers. So, so in one sense, Discovery has done well because the Vitality brand uh, is strong, but just remember that... Uh, uh, they bought the Prudential and they rebranded that Vitality. So we see Premier League Vitality, that's the old Prudential. Uh, and even Investec, I think, you know, uh, a lot of their offshore expansions, they were in Australia, they were in the US, uh, and even in the UK, um, their private bank uh, or their, their uh, what they call wealth and investment has done quite well. But I think the kind of core bank has probably been quite disappointing if you look at the actual return on investment over many years. Peter Major is with Mergence Capital. There was a piece on Bloomberg today to say that the old South African mines have actually rescued the country from a very dire situation economically. Oh, geez, Alec. I wonder how many of these leaders of ours, especially on the ANC side, I wonder how many go to church on Sunday or sit on the weekend on a Friday, Saturday night with their friends when they're drinking and say, Thank heavens we didn't destroy all of mine in South Africa. Thank heavens we came to our senses before they were all closed down by us. Now, I wonder if they're sad that they closed down 80% of our gold mines. I wonder if they ever regret that they put 470,000 well-trained, hardworking, well-paid gold miners out of work, you know, putting half a million out of work just in a, the world's greatest gold industry. I wonder if that eats at them at all, or if they're afraid to admit it because it would make them crumble. But you're right. And to say old mines are saving us, I, I take a little bit of offense at that, Alec, because it's like saying these old IT companies are really saving the states, you know, Microsoft and Apple and, hey, where's IBM? But because a mine is old doesn't mean it's not profitable and it doesn't mean it doesn't have a long life. O'Keep Copper was started officially in 1851. It ran continuously and made money continuously until it was closed by Canadian strippers at the end of 203. Home State Gold Mine was, I think, the oldest share on the American Stock Exchange from, what was it, in the 1870s? And they only closed it in 203, and that was American Berry, because we know big companies love closing an old company at the bottom right before the metal price takes off. I mean, can you imagine closing Homestake that ran for a 
130 years, you closed it at 203, and as we all know, that's just when gold cracked 300 and it's never looked back. So home state could have been pumping. So an old mine almost never deserves to be closed. And yes, these old mines are rescuing South Africa because we don't have any new mines because we have legislation and populace that put everything against new mines. So only old mines can mm. save us because we don't have new ones. We don't. Not very many. <laughs> but, but how did the ANC destroy all those jobs? And is it possible that legislation, you know, if you, if you break something through through action and uh, through governance, it must perhaps be possible to resuscitate it or it, not? It, no, it is possible. It's It's very hard unless you really want to do it. And then it's very easy. Mm. And we've got great examples. Let me talk how we can fix it. Because if I start talking how we destroyed it, the list is really long. And it's it's sad. I'll start crying. But I will, I'm will. i happy to tell you how, how we did it. It's obvious. We all read about it. But how can we fix it? Why don't we just look at Zambia and the DRC? Because they were tied with Chile back in the 1960s. The world's three... Were they the world's three largest copper producers? Pretty close in the early 60s, late 60s, early 70s. They were still tied neck and neck. They were each producing around 650,000 tons of copper a year. Chile, the DRC, and Zambia. And then what happened in the 70s? Well, we had, um, what would you call it, regime change. And with regime change comes policy change. Now, the regime change in Chile says, we don't want to go from 650 to a million. We want to go from 650 to 2 million. So their regime and policy change was positive. So they cracked a million. They went on to 2 million. And if you know the rest of the story, they are now pushing 6 million tons a year. They grew tenfold. But the policy change, regime changes we saw in Zambia and the DRC, they went the other way. They destroyed their industry. So the DRC went from 650, 700,000 tons down to 25,000 tons of copper a year in 2000. Zambia went down to barely 200,000 tons. And then by 2000, both countries said, we are tired of these regimes. We are throwing the regimes out and with them go their policies. And they said, we got a real simple, easy to follow policy. We'll give sunset clauses. Just come in and build a mine. No questions asked. No taxes for the first five, maybe 10 years. No paying VAT on capital equipment that you bring in. Um, there's no such thing as a BE scorecard. Just bring in who it takes to get this place running. And that is a miraculous story. The DRC today from 203 producing nothing Virtually today, I think they're 1.2, 1.3 million tons of copper. And the way Friedland's mines are coming in, Alec, they're going to be 2 million tons of copper a year. They're going to be tied with Peru as the second largest copper producer here in a few more years. In Zambia, they would have cracked a million a few years ago, but then they had a little bit of a policy change, regime change, and they started reneging on deals. They started making legislation a lot more difficult, raising the tax and the royalties, and so they faltered. They fell from 850 down to about 700. Now they kind of bounced back to seven. So we're waiting to see, does Zambia want to go back on the right path or they want to destroy things? So you can fix it quick. Policy changes. Great, great uh, background there. And I recall that when Sir Ramaphosa, before he took over as president uh, of the country, while he had just been elected as president of the ANC, one of the three big pillars that he put was uniformity of policy, good policy, policy that people can understand, policy that people can back on. That was in 2017. Has he delivered on that? Alec, they're tweaking around the edges. You know, the whole world, the whole world I thought was a little too harsh on South Africa. They were trying to get rid of apartheid. Yes, they didn't do it quick enough, but they were working on it. And had they done it quicker, the country would have been in a lot better shape today. Now, had our government made the right policy adjustment sooner, our mining industry would be in a lot better shape today and our country would be in a lot better shape. But they're tweaking things. And as Paul Miller said at, at the last conference that Bernard Swanepoel had, the last junior in Daba, he says, 
In fact, I think he said it the previous one last year. He said, overseas investors, they don't want to hear anymore how we've altered our MPRDA. They don't want to hear how we've altered our BE. They don't care. You know, the fact that we've got an MPRDA is what puts them off. You know, the fact that you have BE, you own the country, you own the minerals, you've nationalized everything. When you told everybody in 1994, we will never nationalize. And 10 years later, you do a direct double cross. So they don't want to hear how you're adjusting your MPRDA and, and these things. They want to hear a new policy, a clear, simple, transparent, fair, competitive policy. Uh, and, and I think Paul's right. So while we're tweaking it, and it lets in a little money here and a little bit there, but people like Major have to work very hard to drag that money in. It doesn't come in here automatically. You know, there's a lot better corporate financiers and promoters out there than I'll ever be. But they all have to work so hard to drag that little bit of money in here because we're working so hard. What he's busting his tail to fix a little bit of this policy. So, yeah, they just don't sense the urgency yet. And I don't think the new guard ever will. They're the ones that brought us this mess. They're not the ones going to fix it. We need young, dynamic, loyal, patriotic South Africans who just want to do what it takes to create jobs and get this place on the right track. Peter, just to end off with, on a, a, a rather depressing note, Richards Bay Minerals today uh, are struggling to continue to uh, to produce they have declared force majeure uh, because of violence in the area this is in northern kwazulu natal it does appear to be a risk that not too many people have been considering for the mining sector certainly we haven't been seeing many mines closed because of unrest in the uh, in the local communities but is it something that is now getting international investors to pay attention and indeed to add on as another risk factor for this country? Oh, without a doubt, Alec. Look, most international investors made the decision long before what's happening at Richards Bay. And all it is is confirmation. It, it, it just shows them, geez, we didn't get out too soon. And it's, it's more reason to just close the book it's more reason that when they see something on Bluebirds, whether it's positive or negative, just blank it off. They see something coming from South Africa now. They don't even look if it's good or bad. Why bother? Because if it's good news, it's like a little candle in a storm. It's going to get put out. And if it's bad news, it's just confirmation of what they already knew. And here's something really tragic that I don't think enough people appreciate is Anglo-American wasn't always the biggest and greatest mining company. There was maybe a couple of times it was close, but in the 60s and 70s, Anglo was a great mining company. But what makes you great is when you compete internationally. And it was competing with some pretty good international companies. One was Rio Tinto that developed Palabora, and another was Newmont that developed O'Keep. And I remember working at Alan Gray when I presented to him Palabora, why we should be in it. And they said, wait a minute, Pete, we're reading the front page here. And you say, Palabora is the fourth lowest grade copper mine on the planet. And in the next sentence, you say, Palabora is the fourth highest profit margin copper mine on the planet. So there's a typo here, Pete. Which is it? I said, no, no, it's both. They go, but how can you be such a low grade mine and you're such a high profit margin mine? I said, well, look at the name at the top of the letterhead. And Alec, that was Rio Tinto. And it was similar with Newmont. And, you know, Newmont was promoting non-white people in 78, 79 in O'Keep Copper. And that triggered a mine worker strike. And do you know what? The government backed the company. It backed an international company against an illegal strike. And that was a radical right-wing white miner strike. And this government wanted to change and improve. And they backed Newmont. And they won. And they promoted non-whites in 79, 80. They were going to shift boss mine captain level. So by the early 80s, you had promotions on a total meritocracy basis. Color bars had already fallen and the government knew about it. The legislation didn't change fast enough, but the government looked the other way and mining companies were doing it. So when we lose these international companies, that's even worse than losing a local company. 
because it brings in modern Western technology, thinking, you know, internationalism, acceptance, um, the way things are done. So it's, we can't afford to lose real Tinto, and, and we're going to. And it, we won't get it back, not in my lifetime. Well, it seems like uh, Stephen von Koller, the chief executive of EOH, is one of our most regular guests lately. Stephen, do you have much time to run the business nowadays? Uh, it's, uh, you know, these things flare up from time to time. We had last week, as you know, as we, uh, uh, a journalist reported, we had issued the, the summonses, so I had to deal with that this week. We've had a um, thing in the newspaper around CETA and the process that uh, they're going through. So, yeah, it's, we spend a lot of time with uh, with media and sends and things like that at the moment. But uh, it has to be done. The jobs have to be saved and uh, the business needs to move on. Well, it- on the bright side, we had Bernard Mostert yesterday, uh, who is the one of the co-founders of Techie Town, who had the misfortune of selling their business in to Steinhoff just before Steinhoff imploded, took shares for the three and a half billion rand, and of course the shares were worthless anyway. And he said that he believes Steinhoff should be doing what EOH are doing and going after the directors. Of course, they they aren't doing anything of the type. So who knows? Maybe all the work that you're doing today is going to be uh, recorded for posterity and used as a as a playbook into the future. Yeah, sure. I mean, my sort of view is um, that, uh, you know, we are services business. And um, it just, if I just look at the feedback from customers, the feedback from our staff, you know, if you, if this happens to them, because the staff and the shareholders and the customers are the people that suffer in this, if they don't see you doing the right thing, they have a very different view on who is this, you know, company. And certainly most people that I see, 99% of employees just want to be proud of where they work, proud of what they do. And that is, you know, most people at uh, EOH was just unfortunate there were a few bad apples. And um, uh, so as leadership, if you don't take the right stand and tell your people, your customers, your partners, your shareholders that you've done everything as a director that you feel you could have done to right the wrongs of the past, it sort of leaves a bit of a, a bad mark, I suppose, against the new management. And this is exactly what we were told by National Treasury, Business Leadership South Africa, uh, a lot of our customers' financial services, if we don't go through these steps, as I outlined in the press release and the sense, then we have a problem that you haven't done everything. You know, you need to deal with the people who did stuff, but you also deal, need to deal with the people who knew about stuff and didn't do anything uh, because that's just as bad in terms of a trust relationship going forward. Well, many people only look at the headlines, and the headlines that came through today suggest that crime does pay, being honest doesn't pay. EOH has done so much, uh, blowing whistles, uh, looking at the those people who, who did commit malfeasance, and now being blacklisted by government. Is there any uh, truth to this uh, to to the headlines, or uh, is there any credibility in those headlines? So the issue is I think the headlines are a little bit uh, exaggerated. You know, we've been through this process with many of our customers, many of our partners, all the financial institutions, et cetera, regulated entities where they phoned us up or sent us letters, you know, back in 2019 and said, please come and present to us why we should continue to use us. You know, they gave us that opportunity because they wanted to know what the issues were, and, and all of them said to us, do you know what went wrong? Do you actually know? What have you done to remedy that so that uh, you can uh, um, prevent it as much as, as, as possible in the future, and that goes to governance control? Three years, have you dealt with the perpetrators and the people that were in, in um, positions of power who knew about what was going on but did nothing? because that is just as complicit. And three is, have you um, instituted actions to put your money where your mouth is and see what you can get back? 
that was stolen. I mean, those are the sort of things you have to do. And uh, so we've largely done that. The CETA process is interesting because we knew up front that uh, we needed to deal with these issues quickly and um, 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 uh, clinically because there was a risk of blacklisting back in 2019. So as I said in my sins and my um, um, press release, we went to CETA in March of 2019. And if you remember, this got broken around, I think, mid-February. I can't remember the exact date. So within a few weeks, we were already at CETA um, telling them what we had found, what the issues were, what we were dealing with them. We've had probably six engagements with them since then, sent them lots of documentation, kept them up to date, as we have the um, National Treasury, as you know we did with PLSA. Um, and um, um, we've done everything we were asked to do. Uh, this process, uh, f- frankly, was a bit of a surprise to me. I didn't expect a letter to arrive on my desk on June the 21st asking us exactly the same thing. Can you please do representations to us as to why we shouldn't blacklist you? Because I felt we'd given them all that information, they they could consider it. But anyway, I went through the process. We gave them uh, our um, presentation, the information. ENS Africa gave them a letter of everything they've done for us and what they've seen done for us and why blacklisting wouldn't be appropriate because, uh, you know, obviously we have to go through the process. If the CETAs still feel that uh, um, we haven't done enough, they will then recommend to the National Treasury that we should be blacklisted based on certain facts. And the National Treasury on their website, you can see, actually have that process outlined. Um, Then what the National uh, Treasury does is they... We have to go and give the National Treasury uh, our um, views, which we've already given to them uh, over the last two and a half years. But if we needed to, we'll do them again. And if they still, if the um, Treasury uphold a blacklisting or restriction process, we then have the ability to go via the courts. So this word imminent that came out in the, the press, I think, is unfortunate. Uh, because the CETA only can only recommend a blacklisting. Uh, National Treasury is the people that make the final decision. But obviously, you know, our legal people and everything uh, are the people that uh, give us the views and give us, you know, whether it's possible. I mean, clearly, a lot of these legal views uh, were looked at by our auditors, uh, etc., during our year-end audit in terms of going concern. So um, we feel we've got a pretty, we're pretty confident that our, we've done enough not to five years later after the event actually be blacklisted. That seems a bit extreme. It was, you made a few very interesting points there, not least that you do have recourse to the courts. So this is a democracy, unlike in China, where uh, companies that are getting under the cosh, they've got absolutely no recourse. But here... If there's something in the public sector uh, that they're trying to implement, you can go to the courts, you can go to the law, and you can get it rescinded. So in this case, everything that you've done so far has been intended, presumably, to rehabilitate the company. Are you still confident that you're on track? Because I see the share price is down 4% today. Yeah, um, if... I mean, it's, it's quite interesting. It's only down 4%. If people really believed what was in the press, it should be down 90%, <laughs> sadly. But uh, the point is, is uh, we do have recourse. There are policies. There are procedures. The reason why National Treasury have this process is because a company has a number of employees. We've got, at the moment, 6,500-odd employees. Just because a few people five years ago were corrupt, doesn't mean all six and a half thousand people are corrupt. It's like saying because we've got one or two bad ministers, the whole of the government is corrupt. It's like saying if you've got one or two bad political leaders, the whole political party is corrupt. It's not true. Um, and what 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 disappoints me, I suppose, Alec, is that 
it's almost as if EOH is an easy target to go after as a legal entity because I still haven't seen CETA banning any companies that uh, um, the perpetrators were involved in or asking the perpetrators to come and give them a representation on why the CETA shouldn't blacklist them from doing work with government. I'm Justin Roberts for Biz News, and with me today is Jean-Pierre Fister, founder of Protea Capital Management, hedge fund guru best known for famously or rather infamously shorting both Steinoff and African Bank, making his investors hundreds of millions in the process. Jean-Pierre, let's start with the NASPA stable, but before we talk about the share swap, what's your stance on the regulatory crackdown happening in China at the moment? Mm, hi, Justin. Yes, uh, very interesting development. I think as outsiders, it's always difficult to really get a grip on exactly what is happening in China and what the intent is of the politicians. And obviously in China, the politicians have got a greater influence on the economy and on specific shares than almost any other country. And when uh, Chinese politicians make these announcements, I think Western investors are prone to overreact and to think that their actions are maybe extremely detrimental to the Chinese companies. Well, we have seen in the past that that is not the case. What the uh, Chinese politicians seem to do is very similar in the Western world when it comes to anti-competitive behavior, for instance. And quite often what they say and the signal that is sent and that Western investors hear are not quite as bad as what uh, the final implementation is. So long story short, I do think that actually this crackdown has more to do with privacy laws and that the Chinese government wants to show these big companies that they are in control, they will have all the data, and no company can get bigger than the Chinese state. But that doesn't mean that there isn't space for these companies like Didi, Tencent, Alibaba, to still make a lot of money, and therefore investors can still make a lot of money. So I'm not as scared of this crackdown as many others are. So how has this affected your international portfolios? Have you been trimming the big tech names such as Alibaba's, the Baidu's, um, as you've mentioned, or are you are you buying the dip? So it's more buying the dip. We we have a holding in ten cent, and we bought a little bit in the last month, and I'm thinking about, about buying some more. Uh, we also own uh, JD.com, for instance. Uh, we haven't bought more yet, but I'm, I'm looking out for that. We own some SoftBank, which has uh, a, a which owns a quarter, roughly, of Alibaba, and I'm looking to increase that as well. And then there's a list of Chinese companies, uh, mostly listed in Hong Kong, that I've been looking at for the better part of six months, and they all seemed a bit expensive. And now for the first time in a while, uh, they're looking more reasonable. So uh, it's more a case of not getting frightened from what's happening, but taking it and uh, taking advantage of it and buying the dip in select uh, companies that are exposed to China. Jean-Pierre, going on to the NASPERS process share swap, I spoke to you on air the week of the announcement, and you've voiced your disappointment and disapproval on the ratio used. Yet you weren't part of the 36 asset managers that have escalated the matter to the NASPERS board. Why is this? Yes, I think this is quite a nuanced issue. And it's, I think, a more complex issue than what a lot of investors, including institutional and professional investors, realize when you just look at it from a superficial level. And when you look deeper, as, as we have done, you see that this share swap um, has got a lot of consequences for the long term, which we believe will be positive for both NASPASH and process shareholders. But to get to the point where you come to that conclusion, you need to go through some interesting uh, uh, paths, and you need to discern between what management have said and what is stated in certain circulars and other information, and what is not said. And you need to fill in the gaps. And I think a lot of investors have filled in the gaps in a way that makes the NASPASH management uh, look uh, incompetent and makes it look as if they are doing something that's not in the best interest of shareholders. Well, the way that we filled in the gap 
is to is to rather come to the conclusion to say that management can't exactly say everything that they are doing and what their long-term strategy is. But there's a very good reason for that, and that is that tax laws change and rules and regulations regarding foreign exchange restrictions change. And if they tell us exactly what they want to do over the long term, the rules might change in the interim and that they can't do uh, what they want to do over the long term. And we firmly believe that what they want to do over the long term is create a company that is primarily listed in the Netherlands, that uh, is tax efficient, and that South African investors who for years have held this, this offshore asset called Tencent, but unfortunately in a very inefficient way through a South African domiciled company called Nasbash, and therefore whenever corporate action happens, some very negative tax consequences for Nasbash shareholders will be resolved over the long term. But for them to resolve that over the long term, they need to do some, some interesting and very complicated transactions. So that is why we were not one of the 36 that signed the letter, because we do believe that management are doing the right things. It's just we think a process that will become clearer as it develops and management can't signal in advance exactly everything they want to do. Jean-Pierre, onto a completely different topic that is short selling. And I'm very interested at your, at your view here, especially given the risks and, and having to manage risks as a hedge fund manager. Hedge funds give a manager the optionality to short shares, i.e. benefit from a shorting pre- share price. Many say it's unethical and the like. But can you just educate us around the benefits of short selling in the financial markets? Sure. So I do think just like you get investors on the long side that are quite different, you get speculators, you get short-term investors, you get long-term investors. Similarly, on the short side, you get different participants that short share. And we see ourselves as what we call responsible short sellers. And most professional hedge funds are responsible short sellers. So when they short a company, it's either based on valuation or it's also based on qualitative factors, which includes the way that we look at shares, both both quantitatively and qualitatively. Uh, But we wait for the market then to, over time, almost like gravity, uh, bring the share price closer to fair value. And that means we try to make money from our shorts, but in a responsible way. And that is good for markets. You can't have share prices just going up. That creates all kinds of problems and, and perverse incentives for people to pump and sometimes pump and dump, which is not very good. You do get irresponsible short sellers. You do get short sellers that come out with reports that sometimes use very emotive language and unfortunately quite often they make mistakes in their analysis and that leads to very sharp share price falls, which over time you then see with the benefit of hindsight that the analysis was wrong. Uh, but that is because they they almost like Mark Audis calls it smash and grab short sellers. They want to smash the short the, the share price. They had some put options probably before they make their public announcements, and they want to grab the profits, and then they don't care later on if they were wrong. So we do think that short sellers have got a role to play in markets, but it needs to be responsible short selling, which the vast majority of the industry is, and it leads to prices that are closer to fair value, and that is good for markets over the long term. And how has events such as GameStop altered your mindset towards shorting shares, where there's such a stark contrast between valuation and share price? Mm, it has been very interesting. And what we've realized is we need to be extremely careful with what you call mean stocks or stocks that have got a lot of positive sentiment, a lot of retail investor participation, and a lot of hedge funds, which on the back of the retail participation, actually do very interesting things that are very questionable coming to, you know, we spoke about irresponsible short sellers. These are some of the irresponsible long investors. But, for instance, Archegos, that hedge fund that blew up uh, a few months ago, if you look at their positions and, and you can look at the share price of a company like Viacom or Discovery Communications in the, in the U.S., and you will see that the share price runs up. It, it almost like triples in the space of a month or two. And then they blew up and came all the way back to where it was previously, dropping by more than 50%. And that clearly shows that when they saw that there was quite a lot of retail interest, they bought a lot of shorter dated call options. And that forces the seller of that call option, normally the bank, to hedge their exposure. You call it uh, doubt hedging. And 
as the share price moves up, you need to do more delta hedging. You call that gamma. So what that means is a rising share price precipitates more rise in the share price, more pressure to buy. And that works for a while uh, until uh, someone stops buying. And that's what happened to Archegos. And then all these share prices, the air comes out of the bubble of these share prices. So we've seen that with some of Archegos' holdings, and we've seen that with GameStop, and that's what we are very careful now in terms of shorting meme stocks, and we generally don't, just too risky. I'm Justin Roberts for BizNews, and you've been listening to Prodia Capital Management founder and hedge fund manager Jean-Pierre Fister. Thanks for being with us. That was the Biz News Power Hour for today, Tuesday, the 6th of July. Be back in your company, same time, same place, tomorrow. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.